Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And this week it is a great pleasure to welcome Jeremy Tabik with us to explore Emor. Jeremy is content manager and part of the faculty at Hadar in New York, where he teaches and edits Hadar's content online in print and also as part of Project Zug uh, courses. Jeremy's also pursuing a PhD in Talmud at JTS. He, of course, comes from a distinguished rabbinic family in the UK, but been now in New York for almost a decade. We had his brother with us at the very end of Bereshit. So it is wonderful to welcome Jeremy today to explore Emor with us. Thank you for having me. I can't promise it'll be uh, as exciting a topic as uh, as for my brother, but it'll be interesting. You can't get more uh, unexpected than werewolves, which is obviously <laughs> his chosen specialized subject, but I'm sure that we're in for a treat today. So <laughs> do look forward. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I am the uh, the rebel of the Tabak family because I'm uh, not a rabbi. I'm just getting a PhD at Talmud. So what I want to talk about today is a pretty big issue that may be come across as unfortunately far too common for many of us, which is basically the question is what happens when the Torah disappoints us? How do we hold up both the divinity of the Torah together with the Torah's moral failings? Like how do we square that circle basically? And uh, this comes up pretty starkly in Parashat Emor from about chapter 21, verse 17, towards the beginning, where it starts listing out the physical defects, the mumim, that if the Kohanim have these uh, defects, they are disqualified from performing any service uh, in the temple, any public service, doing any of the sacrifices. And quite frankly, the notion that people with uh, physical disabilities should be barred from leadership positions, performing sacrifices on behalf of and in front of the people, basically runs counter to what we know ought to be the case from a moral perspective, that God loves all of our bodies, regardless of their limitations or differences, that the Torah nonetheless thinks that we're all images of God, and that the Torah should reflect our highest moral aspirations as the as the word of God. Um, so based on those considerations, you would think that it shouldn't matter what we look like. If you're fit to be a Kohen, to be a priest in any form, you should be allowed to be it. The, 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 physical, the physical defects seem to run counter to what we think ought to morally be the case. And so this is a case where the Torah seems to disappoint us and doesn't live up to our moral standards. And what do we do with the fact that the Torah says this? And there's honestly, there's loads of examples of that you could come to. For example, the Torah tolerates slavery very clearly, which also runs counter to what we understand the message even of the Torah to be, which is in part, uh, in this uh, Pesach season, the uh, freedom for all slaves. So what do you do? How do you approach a problem like this? What does it even mean for the Torah to be God's word or 
you could say it less strongly, divinely inspired or whatever, however you think about this in particular, versus the fact that it can disappoint us and not hold us to the highest moral standards. And I just want to give a, a caveat before I get too deep, which is like a lot of what I have to say about this topic, especially about the defects themselves. I've learned a lot from disability activist Rabbi Lauren Tuckman, and you can certainly look her up and hear more about the kind of uh, thinking about Torah of physical defects and disability in general. And also like about thinking about the Torah and Halakha in general, I owe a lot to my teachers, Rabbi Jason Rubenstein and Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, both of whom have been at Hadar at uh, various times. Um, so this is the basic question, this conflict between what we want the Torah to say and what the Torah actually says, instantiated by this particular instance of the physical defects in the Koanian. But what I want to say about this is there's a few angles that you can like attack this question from. And one, just one small thought on this question that you ask, I suppose that you're not necessarily holding today's moral standards against when the Torah was written. Or That's when... the problem. The problem is the Torah is a historical document, that it comes from a particular uh, time and a particular place. And also, we understand it to be God's words, the guide of our moral compass um, today, uh, and relevant today. So the question is, like, how... Uh, and also there's the other thing, which is like the thing about holding up our moral standards against what people used to say. I feel pretty confident in saying that slavery was always immoral. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that people necessarily agreed with me, but I feel pretty confident to say that was always the case. And even when the Torah says that uh, slavery is permitted in various different circumstances, um, yeah, I, I still feel fine saying that it's immoral. So the question is, uh, the document that's supposed to be the guide to our modern morality, even, how does it square with what we understand to actually be God's law and to be moral and to be what God wants from us, if that answers your question a little bit. So in some ways, I am doing that. <laughs> but in some ways, that's because uh, the Torah makes us do that, because it demands relevance or claims relevance uh, to our lives today. Yeah, so one, one way of thinking about this is, I think, uh, important, which is like the Torah is always in some kind of negotiation between the ideal and the real. And quite frankly, in the particular context of the, of the mumim, of the physical defects for Kohanim, there's like really an unfortunate truth in what the Torah says here. And the fact is that people are a little awful, maybe. But like human nature is such that it's true. We instinctively prefer leaders to be physically perfect, or we assume that physical perfection aligns with moral character. Uh, which is just like part of the whole complex of the Hollywood effect and celebrity culture. Yeah, part of what we do is uh, we have a default assumption that people who physically look good are good. And we have to actually fight that assumption sometimes because we know that's not always the case. So there's actually, there is a real truth to human nature coming out here. And I think it also an uncomfortable truth. Uh, and one that also I think applies specifically to the Kohanim in the sense, let's just think about what their, what the role of the, uh, of the priests are in the temple. They're actually what they're asked to do, which is to basically intercede on our behalf with God or to absolve us of our sins through sacrifice. Like the idea that would even work is basically pretty implausible. So there's something about the whole environment of the temple has to reinforce its plausibility as much as possible. Like the audience of the, of those ceremonies needs to start to believe in it to a certain way. And one way of believing it is to make the physical perfection of the people and the space move towards that uh, reality, to construct the reality where you can actually believe this ritual works. It's actually yeah, a part of the ritual role. So on the one hand, 
we shouldn't shy away from this fact about people. And the Torah is re is revealing something real about us um, that we have to confront, which is that, yeah, we don't make the right assumptions about people. And we do make assumptions about, about people based on their physical bodies. That's also fine to completely emphasize the fact that this is not the moral ideal, but it nonetheless is the way people are. And the Torah has to be in negotiation with that. In other issues, right, the Torah also negotiates between the real and ideal and goes more towards the ideal. So for example, at the end of the book of uh, Leviticus, we have the discussion of of the Shemitah years, the seven-year cycles of agriculture, and the Jubilee years, the 50th year. That whole section is sort of set doubts where people might be like, if I don't farm for a year or two years, what am I going to eat? And the Torah says, don't worry, God will make sure you can eat enough. Like that see, is like pushing towards the ideal, where the ideal is that everyone should get their property back and everyone should have their debts remitted in order to make economic justice, even though the real world has a big trouble with this and it may not play out exactly the way you want it to in the real world. So the Torah is always in this negotiation between the real and the ideal. Sometimes it comes more on one side, sometimes it comes more on the other side. And that's not necessarily, we don't necessarily have to read that as a failing, we have to read that as part of the conversation, which then basically leads to us, okay, so if the Torah is in this conversation between the real and ideal, if I say that the Torah is God's word, what does that even mean? What, am I, what do I mean by saying that if it is in some way compromising with the real world? And that, I think, comes out interestingly in uh, the Torah and also in the rabbinic literature. The, a lot of the focus of rejection of the Torah is around a, a verse which is ki davar Adonai biza, the word of God, he sport, he spurned, he scorned. The point is not that you necessarily think the Torah is wrong, but the point is that you reject it. You think that it's silly or that it's not important uh, for the conversation. And that's what it actually means to reject the divinity of the Torah. It's not necessarily to say that the Torah has got something wrong, but to say that it has nothing to say to us. Because in fact, it might be, that what we're supposed to learn from a passage like this is, in fact, how problematic it is. That's actually one way of, of dealing with the divinity of the Torah. It's in a similar way, thinking about the characters, the stories, the narratives in the story in the, in the Torah. When uh, no one thinks that when Jacob favored Joseph over all the rest of his brothers, that that was a good thing, and that should be emulated by us. You should all choose your favorite child. No one thinks that. that's not how you think about that passage. But the whole point of it is, it's a warning. Right? It's an example of what not to do, a negative example, not a positive example. It's possible that sometimes illegal passages could be used in that way too, uh, which is like, actually, yeah. All, all, all the characters that we encounter have fault after fault after fault. And <laughs> that's such a distinction with, say, Greek literature, which holds up heroes in the kind of perfectionist type. Way. Yeah, and we're going to come back to that uh, contrast with Greek literature a little bit. For sure. Yeah. And the fact that our heroes have faults should make us feel better about the fact that we have faults. Uh, as you say, that makes me think about that, which is part of what we're, what I'm saying is the Torah is telling us uh, with sentences like, with uh, laws like this, which is asking us to really confront uh, our own faults and use negative examples as well as positive examples. So yeah. So what I would say is I think the divinity of the Torah in general, I think this is pretty traditional way of thinking about it, honestly, is more about whether the Torah is in the conversation as opposed to whether it's necessarily right or the end of the conversation. In fact, you might say the Torah is the beginning of the conversation rather than the end, which is uh, right that the, the divinity of the Torah is something like something more like about our attitude towards it as opposed to what it actually says. And the, the our attitude towards it is that we assume it has something to say to us, uh, not necessarily that what it says is perfect in all of its forms. Almost even if 
what it's saying to us is completely the opposite of what it's saying to us. In this instance, what I'm arguing is, right, that what it might be saying to us is that sometimes you have to account for ugly human nature. And that, that isn't necessarily the end goal. That might just be the place where you have to start. And uh, there might be other goals in the future, which the Torah doesn't specify specifically. But this is all, right, this is also... We ourselves, because we, because of the assumption that the Torah is relevant to us, we're also in this nego same negotiation between the real and the ideal, where we're trying to like work out what the world should be like, comparing it to what the world is, comparing it to what the vision of the Torah and what the, what their world should be like, and we're some way situated in that conversation, trying to trying to implement as much of that as possible. But to get back to your point about the contrast with Greek literature, this is actually something that Professor Christine has written about the difference between. Uh, divine law in the, the classical Greco-Roman literature and the uh, classical Jewish literature in her book called What's Divine About Divine Law. One of the assumptions that the Greco-Roman authors come to it is that divine law should be perfect and unchanging and eternal. But that's not actually what the Torah thinks necessarily makes divine law. Uh, in fact, like the Torah notes several times when the law was originally non-existent or unknown or insufficient. And there, there was a negotiation, and actually a new law is generated by the end, and, and a consultation. So, for example, the daughters of Tzlovchad came, they wanted to inherit their father's land. There was no existing law to deal with what to do in that case. So Moses had to go to God and say, hey, what should we do? And a new law was generated out of that. So, in fact, like the divine law in the biblical framework is certainly not unchanging, and it's certainly not uh, perfect, because things change and you might have to come up with new scenarios. You might have to come up with new laws to deal with those scenarios or clarifications of those laws. I think it's pretty, even though it feels like to say that the Torah is the start of the conversation or the end of the conversation might feel to us like a violation of the principle of what might be divine about it. That's actually a little bit the Greco-Roman influence in our life speaking and less the biblical influence in our life speaking, where actually the idea that the law is changed is not only unthreatening, but actually a positive part of it. Because what the law fundamentally is representative of is the relationship between us and our sovereign God. And whatever God's will is, that's the law. And God's will could change. And that's part of the, the relational aspect here in the Torah's vision, and also the risen in rabbinic literature to a, to a large extent. But yeah, so I think the divinity of the Torah does not assume that the conversation ends there. It assumes that the conversation starts there, or at least it's a part of the ongoing conversation. But we may move on and, and get on to other topics, but nonetheless, the, the law in the Torah stands, right? The alternative method, basically, would be to be like, this piece of the Torah is wrong. It's bad. It's not, doesn't reflect our values. It's gone. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to ignore it. I'm uh, going to pretend it doesn't exist. This is, to me, seems like a, a much uh, poorer uh, method, which is much less reflective, much less discursive. It actually doesn't force us to confront our human nature in this way, in a way that leaving the Torah intact actually does and opens up that conversation, acknowledging the ugliness of human nature and also giving us space uh, to move the conversation along. So yeah, that's pretty much uh, my pitch. <laughs> I, I think it's fascinating, Jeremy, that what you've brought is really demonstrating the power of the Jewish conversation, the rabbinic tradition, the rabbinic imagination, the importance of turning and turning again the words with ever new meaning. 
And what suddenly came to mind, perhaps, though, was that although that is our tradition, there are those, and we know who they might be, who will every so often come and point to specific verses and hold them as sacrosanct in the way that everything else is open to interpretation and reinterpretation. And and I wonder what you might reflect on that. Yes, you're right. I think part of this is all the negotiation. Like some things are always going to be more sacrosanct than others. And some things are going to be taken more literally than others. And that's just part of the negotiation of a people and its law over its God over time. I think that like, it all exists on a spectrum is the truth. Like, I think if my moral convictions about this passage in Parasha Emil were different, we would be having a different conversation. So if I, if we're talking about a pasuk, which I have no moral compunctions over, but other people do. So for example, the, uh, the commandment to circumcise sons, I find this completely non-problematic in no, in any way from a moral perspective. I understand there are many people, I'm many Jews who think that it is problematic for a bunch of very good reasons. Um, and an increasing group of those too. And I honestly, the, the arguments make sense. Like I'm not trying to limit to, to put any arguments down. Like I understand why there's a conversation about this. It makes sense. And it greases the, it, it, in the end, makes the whole conversation richer to have this conversation. But uh, yeah, if you'd asked me about that, I'd be holding up that pasuk and say, yeah, this is the literal meaning of this pasuk and we shouldn't change it at all. This is exactly how we should act today. So yeah, that's for sure. There's a, there's always a spectrum on these things. It certainly depends on the context of how, when, how a person approaches this, these texts, what they think. One of the other things is I often think about is we love to try and work out like pshat, right? The pshat, like the plain sense. Just what does it actually just mean? Just what is the plain sense of a thing? What does it just mean? What does this verse mean in its plain sense, whatever that is? And there's all sorts of assumptions that we have to make in order to be able to even to be able to ask that question. Like, what do we think a verse actually means re- is reflective of our worldview in many ways more than what the verse actually means itself. So, like one one good example is: Do we think that the Torah has to be like true to what we understand about? If that's the case, then when we come to a verse in the Torah and we see that it doesn't seem to support what we know to be true about God, for example, we know it morally or whatever in our bones that we understand the world in such a way that we know that God is loving and we come to a passage where God sends a plague throughout B'nai Israel or whatever, and then kills hundreds of thousands of them or whatever it is, hundreds or thousands of them. What's like, what do you do with that? Actually violate your shut of what you think God, of how you think God acts in the world. And that could actually color what you think the basic shut of a verse is. So it's all very, unfortunately, unfortunately, very context driven. And how do you tackle that? How- <laughs> that small question. That, just that small question. I know we're recording this before Pesach and people will hear this after Pesach, but the passages in the Haggadah that refer to the plagues were always very troubling following, you know, great moments in the Haggadah prior to and post as we look to the future and so on. But the plagues that we seem to get bogged down with as they amplify and multiply and, and increase and so on. Yeah, so you're going you're gonna to be left with a few choices there. Um, one possibility is you may have to re-examine your prior assumptions as to how God acts in the world. It may be that you thought that God wouldn't do plagues. Turns out, actually, God does. That's one way of, uh, of thinking about this. Another way of thinking about it is, oh, plagues are within a, a larger goal, right? The larger goal of freedom and uh, life, right? Supporting life, because, right... At the end of the day, the uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are on essentially on the side of death in this conflict, are on the side of fascism. 
And uh, so therefore, God has to step in on the side of life and freedom. So you could take it that direction as well. There's some larger goal of which it's in service of. Or you could take it a bit more metaphorically also. But yeah, I think those are your main options. And that's part of what I'm talking about this negotiation, which is that it's always a conversation between us and the text. And sometimes the text will force us to re-examine our own assumptions. And sometimes the text... And sometimes our assumptions will color what we think the text means and make us rethink what the text means. So in other words, we thought the text might say X, but that doesn't work with our assumptions. So it must mean something else. It must be something deeper than that. And that that push and pull works both ways. Sometimes the text will change us and sometimes we will change the text. But always the method is to hold the text high and to... Uh... To, to hold it up and not to pick and mix. And to that's, make it that's, that's relevant and right, to make it relevant and to make it a part of the conversation and to make it even a central part of the conversation, but not necessarily the end result. Jeremy, thank you so much for your exploration and challenging us and challenging the text. And we looked to a few weeks ago, Alex Sinclair spoke about how we should approach the text borrowing Kahneman's system one and system two and in and in Shul on Shabbat approach it with system one after that approach it with system two so you've given us plenty to think about for Shabbat and entering into system one and look forward to the endless debate to continue before and after Shabbat so thank you so much for joining us we look forward to welcoming you again thank you so much if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about our exciting content on our mothership, jewishquest.org. We do very much look forward to welcoming you again next week.